on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy that thinks my existence is a nuisance. He is the captain. I'm the host with the mostest. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling your mother. This week in the fridge, we have Sahayo Stout by our good friends over at the Columbus Brewing Company. I was drinking some great Columbus Brewing Company beers at the Clippers baseball game, so we had to put them back on the show. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. And today we are drinking with our good friends first up a raise of the glass to Mandy in Peachtree City, Georgia. And a big shout out to Needlosh in Chicago. Here's one to Mandy in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She's asking if the captain could send her one of his hoodies. I'm guessing it's still cold up there. I would send one, but my hoodies smell like tears and desperation. And a big we like your jib to Sally in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Here's a big cheers to Doreen in Belgium. She told me to roll the R. I'd like to go to Belgium. I think I would be welcomed there and last but not least a shout to caitlin in tiverton rhode island thanks to everybody for helping us out with this week's shows if you want to help us out with next week's go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button and we restocked a lot of stuff in the website store so go to truecrimegarage.com click on the store page and check out the new stuff and i should be launching we have some stickers launching hopefully this week so i've seen the stickers and they are fantastic we've got a couple more designs coming in the next couple weeks as well so that's enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
The website, ohioattorneygeneral.gov, contains many resources. One resource on there that both saddens me and angers me is a list of cold case homicides, all taking place in my home state, the great state of Ohio. You can browse this list by searching a specific name or do as I have many times. Start at the beginning and go in chronological order. Through the years, many cases on there have caught my eye. Several of them I have personally looked into, hunting down old newspaper articles, sifting through online message boards, looking for not only information, but theories and suspects. After all, this is my home state, where my family and friends live, and according to this list, killers are walking amongst us. One of the cases that caught my eye was that of a young woman, killed at home alone in her apartment. The case was initially of interest to me because I noticed that I once lived in the neighborhood in which she was killed. On the government website, this is case number 17. The victim's name, Amy Hooper. This was just one of many cases that for me stopped being just a number on some list and became a name on a file folder. However, I am slightly ashamed to say that the file ended up on a shelf in my office, collecting dust. Later, through conversations, I learned of an even closer connection I had to the unsolved murder case. My mother and Amy's mother taught at the same school, and my father followed the case in the papers and on TV. Not too long ago, I was busy cleaning out the old office and sifting through some old case files, some that we have covered here on True Crime Garage and others that we hope to. I found Amy's folder, flipped through it, and looked at her photo. The sadness and anger returned. And so I decided to revisit this case. Amy was only 20 years old when some savage took her life. She was very close with her family and had many friends. The motive for this cold-blooded killing is not obvious, and the killer remains hiding in the shadows. This week, we take a look at just one of Ohio's many cold case homicides. This is the case of Amy Hooper. Amy Joy Hooper was one of three daughters born to parents Joy and Hollis Hooper. When Amy was born on November 2nd, 1971, her sisters were quite a bit older. Holly was eight and Sandy was 10. So Amy was the baby of the family. Joy Hooper said that Amy was spoiled from all of the mothering and that her sisters treated her like a little baby doll. They actually took care of baby Amy when their mother was ill for a time and was unable to do so. Amy was blonde with curly ringlets 
and hazel eyes. And as an adult, she was on the smaller side. She was maybe five foot three inches tall. The website that we discussed lists her at 103 pounds. But according to her family, she was, quote, about 90 pounds soaking wet. The Hoopers lived in Columbus, and Amy attended Westland High School for a time. But Amy's sisters, Holly and Sandy, tell us that Amy and her mother, Joy, clashed a little when Amy was a teenager. This, from my understanding, seems to be fairly normal for teenage girls. According to the family, some of this clashing had to do with a boyfriend whom the parents have viewed as abusive. And Amy's mother, Joy, was very concerned because Amy actually had been hit on two separate occasions by this boyfriend. Also, this boy's mother worked in the school cafeteria, and it sounds like she may have harassed Amy after Amy tried to break up with her son. Yeah, and after Amy's sophomore year at Westland High School, her parents are going to try to move her to get away from this douchebag. Well, after being given a choice of where to live, she was offered the choice of living with either her aunt or her sister, Amy decided to go out to California to live with her sister, Sandy. And Sandy moved out there in 1982. The two sisters were very close, despite the 10-year age difference between the two. Amy did her junior year at high school in California and hung out with Sandy and Sandy's boyfriend, Ray. But after her junior year, Amy moved back to Ohio and went to live with her aunt in a nearby town and graduated from a different high school. This would have been in 1989. After graduating from high school, Amy moved back to Columbus and moved in with her mom. Hollis and Joy had very recently gone through a divorce, and although this was not acrimonious, it was a tough time for everyone. Amy wanted to save money so she could return to California to go to college. She loved fashion, and she looked for a job that would allow her to work in that industry. She got a job as a manager at a Wilson's Leather Store in the Westland Mall which many media reports refer to as Berman's Leather mm-hmm. because Berman's was bought out by Wilson's Leather at some point. Well, she worked there for about six months, a job that she reportedly loved, and she was very responsible, never showing up late, never missing a day of work. She also occasionally designed display windows for the Lazarus department store. She rode the bus, so she didn't have to spend money on a car. One thing to note about Amy is that she loved animals and had a soft spot for anything furry. At the time of her death, she had two cats that she had taken in. Articles about Amy state that she was very social, had a lot of friends, and was known to frequent a West Side bar called Coconuts. She also, it has been reported, dated black men, almost exclusively, like the abusive boyfriend from Westland High School. This fact will become significant later. Also, her family describes her as very trusting, friendly, and although she was stubborn, she would stand her ground when she needed to. Yeah, now Amy's 20 and she's going to rent her own apartment. This starts on February 17th, 1992, renting an apartment at 4942 Medfield Way in Lincoln Village in Columbus. Now, even though this was an apartment, it wasn't a big high-rise type building. Amy's ground floor apartment door opened into a grassy open area outside, punctuated by a spider web of walkways leading between the various apartments and the street. So to get to Amy's front door, all someone had to do is walk up to it. There were no entranceways, 
gates, outer doors, or security measures whatsoever. These buildings were not equipped with security cameras. Amy leased this apartment on her own, but allowed a friend to move in with her rent-free. This is a woman whose name we don't know, but we do know that she had a small child. Mm -hmm. The family isn't certain how Amy knew this roommate, but her sister Sandy says Amy told them that she was going to let them live there really because she's just taking them in to help them. Amy had a kind heart and right. and the woman and her baby really had nowhere to go. Who cares how they became friends? It's simply, here's Amy. She has a place. Here's a single mother. Hey, come stay with me for a while. Let's get you on your feet. It sounds like that maybe Amy tried to move this girl into her mom's house when she was still living there. But after a few days, her mother was like, no, we're not having outsiders come and freeload off of our family and just stay here. You know, this woman apparently didn't have a job at the time, or at least that the family knew of. So Amy rented the new apartment and let her friend and the baby move in with her. Amy and this roommate were really still getting settled at the time. Even Amy's mother had not visited the apartment yet because the women were still getting the place together and they were actually lacking in the way of furniture at this time. Amy's sister, Holly, was also living in Columbus, but she was in a serious relationship with someone in Cleveland. Now, on Friday, March 6th, Holly planned to travel up to Cleveland to see her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So she and Amy made some kind of arrangement where Amy would borrow Holly's car and take care of Holly's dog for the weekend. It turns out that Amy wanted the car so that she could go up to see her boyfriend who was going to Bowling Green at the time. This was a young guy whose name we, we won't use. Holly did not want Amy driving her vehicle all the way up to Bowling Green. So what happened is Amy borrowed her mother's car instead and left her sister's car with her mother for the weekend. Now everybody has a car to use. Amy did not tell her mother that she was planning on going to Bowling Green. And it seems that Joy did not know about this boyfriend. She never met him. Mm -hmm. She only heard about him after Amy's death. Again, I'm going to bring up the fact that it's early 90s, so it's not like you have a lot of internet dating or a lot of ways of communication with some of these people. It could be somebody she went to high school with that went to Bowling Green for college or moved there with their family. Who knows? On Monday, March 9th, Amy's sister Holly returned to town from her weekend in Cleveland, and she went straight to work. Amy actually returned the night before from her weekend and went out with some unnamed friends the night before. The plan, Amy was supposed to meet Holly on Holly's lunch hour that day to return her car. Now, when Amy failed to show up, Holly called her apartment numerous times to no avail. We don't know whether she also called Amy's work, but she told us that she couldn't find Amy that day. It was later reported that by 1 p.m., Amy's friends and co-workers started to call each other, looking for Amy. Meanwhile, Holly called her father, and he gave her a ride to Amy's new apartment. Holly had a key to her car and was hoping to be able to retrieve the vehicle. She and her father knocked repeatedly on Amy's apartment door, but there was no response. Yeah, but they were able to find her car. Yeah, Holly's car was in fact still there. And because she had the key, she was able to open the car door and then drive the vehicle back to her work. Mm -hmm. 
Hollis also left at this time, likely figuring that there had been some kind of mix-up. One thing we have no information on is whether the police ever took a look at Holly's car, which we know Amy drove that morning. So we don't know if it was ever dusted for prints or examined for signs of a struggle or even things out of place. Now, at this point, Holly called her mom, Joy, to see if she knew where Amy was. She had a really bad feeling when she was able to locate her car at Amy's apartment, but Amy was nowhere to be found. Joy was a teacher, and she was in the classroom all day long, so it was hard for her to talk on the phone. But eventually, around 3.30, Joy was gathering mail at the school where she worked, and people from Amy's work started to contact her because Joy was listed as Amy's emergency contact person. Amy failed to show up for work. Then when Joy was finally able to call Holly, Joy told Holly that Amy had been to her house in Grove City around 6.30 that morning and returned her car and took Holly's car. The two chatted while Joy put on her makeup getting ready for work. Amy told her mother at that time that there was a manager's meeting that was scheduled for work that day, later that morning, and she was supposed to be a part of this meeting. From what I could tell, from what I could find, the manager's meeting was to be around noon, or at least that's what some reports say. Joy said Amy seemed normal at this time when they were talking that morning Mm -hmm. and very happy that morning. So just a quick summarized version of that timeline, because there's a lot of moving pieces and parts here. Okay, so the the general timeline is this. Amy returns to Columbus Sunday night. We don't know what time. She goes out with some friends. Early Monday morning at 6.30 a.m., she's at her mother's house. Remember, they have to switch out the vehicles. And so at 6.30, she talks to her mother. Everything seems normal and happy and good at that time. There's nothing strange going on with Amy. She takes her sister's car and presumably goes straight to her apartment. Now, where we are now is we have multiple people who have reached out to Amy's mother trying to get a hold of her because they're like, we haven't seen Amy. We have Amy's sister, Holly, who I found my vehicle at Amy's apartment, but no Amy. And now we have her work calling Joy because she is the emergency contact listed on her information because they've not seen Amy either. She's supposed to have been at a manager's meeting that day. And mind you, she's worked there for over six months and never missed a day of work. So this is raising all kinds of alarms. The, you know, the red flags are going up, especially for Joy. Well, and sometimes mothers just know. Well, she's already heard from one daughter and she's heard from Amy's work. And she's saying as soon as this went down, she knew right away that something bad had happened. Right. So Joy, Amy's mother, asked Holly, the sister, to meet her at Amy's apartment. They wanted to go to the rental office and ask if they had seen anything. Trying, They're still trying to find Amy. And they called Amy's father to meet them there as well. So once they arrive, Hollis, her father, tries the door to Amy's apartment and found it locked. They decided to go to the super's office and ask them to open up the door. Now, Joy, the mother, had to be present in order for the super to open up the apartment door. He had to receive permission from a person listed on Amy's lease documentation as a person who could actually authorize entry into Amy Hooper's apartment. 
So around 4 p.m., Amy's dad and the super entered the apartment. Holly and Joy stayed outside, thank, thank God. This is what Hollis and the super found. According to the newspaper reports, upon entering the apartment, they would find Amy lying naked and bound face up on the hardwood floor of an upstairs room in her apartment. She had been beaten over the head, suffering a cracked skull, which one early story in the Columbus Dispatch described as a split and that she was stabbed in the neck and heart. Her hands were bound behind her with a nylon cord dangling from a unique pendant tucked into her hands. And the police stated that they were unsure whether this belonged to Amy or if it was brought into the apartment by the killer. Right. This was a wood and leather medallion, a heart shape painted with colors of red, yellow, and green glued to a black wood circle. Was there any sign of uh, sexual assault? There was, according to the newspapers, that is unclear. Yeah. Now, regarding this medallion itself, the, the newspapers asked if this could mean something. Even asking if the killer was making some kind of statement because Amy was dating an African-American man. Or was this just something that was lying around? Right, but what does a medallion have to do with an African-American man? Well, mind you, the colors that were on there. We have red, yellow, green. Mm-hmm. So we have colors of the or, African flag. I would believe the... Uh, right, or is it somebody that saw a white woman with a black man and... I wanted to make her pay for that. Correct. Yeah, I mean, is that well, what you're saying? That's what the papers were saying. Okay. I want to be very clear about that. That's what the newspapers in 1992 were saying, not what the colonel is saying not, in right. 2019. Right. I'm simply reporting what was reported. So the question here regarding this, this medallion, this necklace, whatever you want to call it, is did this actually mean something? Did the killer bring this to the apartment with them? Or was it just something that was lying around that was found in Amy's apartment that the killer used to tie her up? Newspapers even suggested that this might be the key to the case. Police told the media that Amy may have been rendered helpless with her hands tied and then struck on the back of the head. The family has stated that the blow to the head is what, in fact, killed Amy. The stab wounds were all post-mortem. And the family say that they were told that there were 13 or 14 stab wounds in all. Well, see, to me that seems like an act of passion, rage, so more likely somebody she knew. Well, that's that's pretty spot on there by you, Captain. Good job out of you, because according to the detectives, what they told the papers was whoever did this to Amy was harboring some kind of rage against her. Now, the knife that was used was found at the scene. Oh, that's always nice when they leave that behind for you. But the puzzling thing is the weapon that was used to bludgeon Amy on the head, the blow that killed her, was never found. Mm-hmm. So real quick before we move on regarding the knife, we know that it's found at the scene, although we've never been told. No one could tell us if this was something that the killer brought to the scene or something that the killer found already in the apartment. We don't know if this knife belonged to Amy or even the roommate. Right, but they believe those stab wounds were post-mortem, 
So where is this object that hit her on the head to split the skull? Well, they didn't find that at the scene. You know, unlike the knife, they did not find this weapon. And in fact, they, according to investigators, they weren't really even certain what type of weapon it was. The only thing that they told the media was that they, all they know is it was a sharp, heavy object. So almost immediately after finding Amy's body, investigators, they're searching alleys, dumpsters, garbage bins in the area. They're looking for, of course, not only clues, but mainly looking for the sharp, heavy object that killed her. Right. But they found nothing. Well, even though that they found nothing around her apartment, do we have anything else that we know, more information about the scene of the crime? We do have some more detailed information here regarding the murder scene. We know that Hollis, the father, discovered the horrifying traumatic sight of his daughter lying dead on the floor. The Franklin County Sheriff's Department, they were called in to investigate. They were the lead on this murder case. The 911 call came from Amy's family at 4.21 p.m. that day. Detectives were very quick to close off the scene, and they started their investigation immediately. Now, the apartment door, windows, or really anything otherwise showed absolutely no signs of forced entry. There was also very little sign of a struggle in the apartment. There was a phone cord. Now, this was found to be ripped out of the wall. Police, from what they could see at the scene, surmised that Amy had taken a shower that morning. Well, and this kind of gives us some kind of a window of when the time of death would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is actually very important to our investigation here because what we have here, Captain, is we know that around 4 o'clock is when her father enters the apartment. By 421, we have detectives on the scene. They've already blocked everything off. So regarding the time of death, we have a couple of indicators to tell us what that could be. We know she was at her mother's house at 630. And then she returned. We're presuming that she came straight to her apartment. Maybe she stopped off along the way. But what we do, in fact, know that once she returned to her apartment, she did take a shower. And we'll get into the details of this more, why we know this to be absolute fact. This is not something where anybody needs to let us go. She could have taken a shower the night before or before she went to go pick up the car. No, we have details that point out that matter of fact, she took a shower after returning to her home. So what I'm getting at here with the window of time of, of the frame of time that we need to be concerned with to find this offender is to narrow the narrow the time of death down to this. She returns home sometime after the shower. And before the time that she had to be at work that day, somebody killed Amy Hooper. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. 
Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. 
Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious, from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. So regarding the time of death, this has never been publicly stated what the actual time was. Police publicly would only say that Amy had apparently been dead for several hours by the time she was found. What other information do we have from the scene of the crime? Well, there there were things at the scene, Captain, that would give the appearance that she may have been getting ready to go to work at the time when this attack went down. Right. Okay, so she had a plastic pink carry-all that held her makeup and hairbrushes. This was found lying open on the bedroom floor, you know, ready for use. Right. The uh, She had an electric blanket on a pull-out sofa. Remember we said that they had just moved in and they were kind of lacking in the area of actual furniture. Everybody knows this when you go out, move out of mom and dad's house for the first time, you realize, I don't own anything. Maybe the fourth or fifth <laughs> time. Yeah, I don't own anything. So she was actually using a pull-out sofa at the time as her bed. So the right. pull-out so- sofa is still set up for, for her bed, and she had an electric blanket on that, which was still plugged in at this time. Mm-hmm. Her hair dryer was plugged in as well. So here this paints a picture of this young woman who had returned home we might even guess that she may have taken a nap, maybe went back to sleep for a little bit of time. Possible, just, but there are people that just leave things plugged in all the time. Mm-hmm. So that is a possibility. And then decides to get up and start getting ready for work, and then somehow this attack happens, right? So we know that she was found in the nude. There is some question, was she did was she surprised? You know, was was she coming out of the shower when she was attacked or did the killer strip her? You know, because the the shower part and the makeup part makes me seem to me makes it seem like she's getting ready for work. And also then it goes back to the idea that 
somebody knows her schedule mm-hmm. because they would know when she would have to go to work. Mm-hmm. Or somebody watched her go into her apartment alone. Right. Is another possibility. Mm-hmm. So regarding this, this whole situation of her getting ready for work, what we do know is this, that this was not in the newspapers, but detectives specifically told her family that they believe that Amy may have opened the door and was in her robe at the time that she opened the door. And we don't know or have details as to why they would come to this conclusion or tell the family that. What we do know is we have no signs of a forced entry. So that has to be a consideration. Mm. Did somebody simply knock on the door, ring the doorbell, and she lets them in or opens the door and they force their way in? Now, the other thing that I wonder about regarding this situation of telling the family that we believe she opened up the door and was in her robe at that time. We know that she was found dead upstairs. Did they find the robe downstairs near the front door? You know, those are the questions that, that you wonder how they came to that conclusion or at least why they are telling the family that now regarding the scene itself, we have Chris Floyd. He was one of the deputy sheriffs who was, Uh, He was actually the first officer on the scene and he noted the position of Amy's body. And he says that he found it to be quite bizarre. He said, quote, she was displayed. It wasn't as if she fell that way. My first thought was this was to make a statement. It's hard to know what the reason why he believes this, because we obviously didn't see how she was displayed. So, but I'm guessing there's, there's some kind of reason. Well, use the using just his words. I think what we can we can deduce from that is he is of the opinion that she was displayed, that she didn't fall like that. Someone positioned her in that manner in his opinion. Right, but we also have possible postmortem wounds and does that come into a play of where she I'd assume that comes into the play of where she's going to be laying if you're attacking the body after she's already dead. Well, let's talk about that medallion for a while, because so much has been made in the newspapers about that medallion. If you look up this case, unfortunately, there's not a lot of news coverage mm-hmm. on this case. There's there's a handful of of good newspaper articles. I'll say that uh, that word, good newspaper articles. They're not great. In a sense that some of the lengthier ones... While they make for a good type of murder mystery, if it were to be fictional, this is a true story. And the truth of some of this stuff seems to be left out of the papers. Now, in their defense, this may be information that they just don't know. Okay? So this medallion, if you look up the Columbus Dispatch news stories regarding this case, and I'm, I'm sure that there was probably one or two that made their way through the Associated Press. But they, time and time again, asked the question, is this medallion, is this necklace the key to the case? Because they're, they're asking the obvious question here. Was this something that the killer brought to the scene with them, used it to tie her up, and then either forgot about it, was startled and had to leave the scene earlier than they wanted to, right. or you know, left it there for any number of reasons. The truth about that medallion is it's very likely not the key to this case at all. 
because we know this. This is one thing that we know to be fact. Her sister, Sandy, her older sister, remember that she lived with for a time in California. Oh, Sandy. Says to us uh-huh. that that medallion was not only, not only did it belong to Amy, but I know that it belonged to her because I purchased this for her. Right. Sandy says that she bought the, uh, what she called a Rastafarian themed medallion for Amy when the two attended a reggae festival in San Diego when Amy was out in California with Sandy. And then furthermore, Sandy went on to tell me that not only did she purchase this for her little sister, but she knew that Amy would often keep necklaces hanging on a, this is how it was described to me anyway, hanging on a, from a lamp that was near her bed. I think this was up on a desk or table of some sort. And that all of them just kind of hung from this lamp. Well, we know that Amy was found in an upstairs bedroom. My thought is that this turns out to just be something handy that was already at the scene. We know this per her sister, Sandy, and that the killer grabbed it and used it to tie Amy up and then never felt the need to take it with them because it wasn't theirs in the first place. It had likely had no connection to the killer at all. Well, and the fact that her sister's story is so detailed, hey, I know where I bought this for my sister. Right. Um, and then also it makes the idea of what the police are saying. They think that she answers the door in a robe or something like that when she's getting ready to go to work because maybe she had this in her hand or in the pocket of the robe or whatever when she's getting ready because she was going to put it on. Well, and in the defense of the reporters, I think that this is really just a detail that has gotten lost somewhere along the way that's gotten lost between the investigation and the reporting of the murder and the investigation. Because Sandy was not questioned or spoken to until about two days after Amy was actually killed. Remember, she's still out in California. So she has to fly back. She wants to be with her family. And during that time is when she spoke with the investigators. So my guess is the way that this thing went down is that very early on, the newspapers are given some details regarding the crime and the crime scene, right? which includes this medallion or necklace, whatever you want to call it. And they kind of ran with this idea. I don't know that this information ever got to them, that that is not the case, that they don't have to question this medallion and it being in the apartment anymore because it was supposed to be there. Right. And a lot of times when people cover a story again, they just read an article and then repeat a lot of that stuff. And then, then you have another paper saying, Hey, this medallion might have something to do with the connection. You know, I, I buy more of our sister's story that she bought it for her sister. Well, I I'm stating it as fact. Mm-hmm. I have no reason to believe that anything other than exactly what she said happened. So, I was actually talking to a friend of mine regarding this case cuz this is a bit of a pet case of mine. You know, you talk about red light cases, this is this is one for me. And we were talking about this this medallion, this necklace thing and they asked me, "Well, why would the detectives on the case still continue to let the newspapers believe that this medallion might be a big key to solving the case. And my answer is simply this. One, the detectives don't owe that information to the newspapers. They may be wanting to hold that information back. But then on top of that, as detectives, 
they're just happy that somebody's reporting about this case because we talk about so many times that you need the public's help. And if this case can stay somewhat in the public eye, even though it has not, you know, that's probably their hopes there. And I do want to point out something regarding this case as well, that there have been a couple of detectives over the years that have worked this case and I've not questioned their efforts. And I don't think anybody should. I, mm-hmm. the, from the detectives that I've spoke to and from retired individuals that I've spoke to, there, there has been a lot of effort made on this case. This case is not cold for because of lack of effort on the investigation. Yeah, part. but let's be honest. I mean, the end of the 80s, early 90s was a different time than now, and there, there was definitely more prejudice and more racism going on and, and more people being vocal about that. And so to have a 20 year old white girl dating, you know, pretty much all black guys, there could be some police officers on the case that are prejudiced or racist, but it really doesn't seem that way in this case. It really seems like they were trying their best to solve this case for this family. Well, speaking of investigators, there was a Franklin County Sheriff's Detective Clark. He has been the one that is often cited in the newspapers when talking about Amy Hooper's case. And one thing, one statement that he has made is that, quote, there are a couple of significant things that only the killer would know, end quote. So one of these things might be the actual murder weapon. Because although the cops have told the press repeatedly, and even as recently as 2011, that they didn't know what the bludgeoning weapon was, they did tell the family, Amy Hooper's family at the time, of the murder at first that it might have been a hammer. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know if they're just guessing here that it could be a hammer or if, in fact, they did find the actual weapon and they're holding that information back. Right. Because a lot of times when they're doing the autopsy, they will go, okay, here is the, here's the wound. There's maybe a punctual wound. What are we looking for? Mm-hmm. What kind of object? And, and they might have a broad strokes of what that object is. But like you said, the hammer could just be a guess. Yeah. And then they told the family that it looked like to them that Amy had run to her landline phone. Okay. So this is kind of the full story of what investigators are working with. The, it, what the evidence is showing them is that this is, some, this is how this might have went down. Right. That she answered the door in her robe, and then the killer either is welcomed into the home or forces their way into the apartment. And then at some point, Amy made a move for the landline phone, possibly to call for help. They believe that the killer then grabbed the phone and hit her over the head with the actual phone. According to one family member, they were told that blood was found on the phone itself. Now, that doesn't have to mean that she was hit with the phone. We do know that the only really true sign of struggle that was shown inside that apartment was the phone cord being ripped out of the wall. Right, and the fact that she dated a guy that was abusive to to her, you know, one, where's his whereabouts this day? Is is he around? Um, I think that's something they need to look into. And also, the men that she was dating, 
was there any history of abuse with them? Maybe not that she reported to the family or friends, but do they have any arrest by being a, abusive to somebody else that they dated? Mm-hmm. And so now you have those kind of suspects, and then it, we have her wanting to go to Bowling Green, right, to hang out with a friend. She she came back the day before, yeah. Right. And so does she have somebody at home that she's seeing that would be jealous of the fact that she went to go hang out with somebody in Bowling Green? So you're saying we should get to some possible suspects here, Captain? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Well. Um, and, I'm, and I'm starting with the high school douchebag. Okay. You know, not in high school anymore, but the guy that she dated in high school. Well, let me finish up with the crime scene stuff first, and then we'll get to yeah. possible suspects. So one thing that in, the investigators are keeping mum on and won't even discuss with the family is whether Amy was sexually assaulted or not. Now, later, all these years later, we do know that DNA was found at the scene. We do know that that DNA does not belong to Amy. This has been publicly stated. We do not know the source of that DNA. But do we know if it's male or female? Well, well it I, sounds like we don't know shit. Well, here's here's where I'm going to go with this. Okay, they've they've never said this publicly. Okay, so we're 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 basing our story off of what has been stated publicly throughout this the course of this very long investigation. But what we can do for you is we can pick apart the pieces of this investigation and really tell you kind of what's going on with it based off of their actions. And we do this often when we look at these investigations. How do we know that DNA was found at the scene? Well, we know that because they've publicly publicly stated that they have cleared possible suspects when testing DNA. Right. Okay. The only suspects that they have publicly stated have been cleared by DNA testing are males. So where I'm going with this is I believe that they have knowledge that the DNA found at the scene that was not Amy's is that of a male, that our offender is in fact a man. Right. Because there, there could have been females that you would, you would test, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they must know that this DNA belongs to a man and they have tested several individuals and cleared them based off of their DNA evidence. Well, can you start with the X, the abusive fart eating jerk store? Yeah. So earlier we mentioned Amy's abusive boyfriend from when they attended Westland high school together. Mm-hmm. Well, get this. The, the family says that they have reason to believe that this guy actually tried to follow Amy to California. Remember her parents suggest, Hey, you got to get away from this guy. You can go move with your aunt who lives in another part of Ohio, Uh or you could go live with your adult sister out in California. She chooses California. What I've been told, the family says we have reason to believe that this dude tried to follow her out to California. But from what we can recall, for whatever reason, he failed to do so. Meaning he never caught up with, Amy while she was in California. So then you wonder, was he waiting for her when she returned to Ohio? Yeah. Or did he hear about her returning and go, Oh, she's back time, time to go back to being a jerk store. As far as the family is aware of, 
Amy Hooper's family. They say that they are not certain. They have no reason to believe that the two actually ever saw each other ever again after Amy moved out to California, even when she moved back. Right. But it certainly seems, though, that he was a good candidate for a suspect to be the murderer, given that he was violent and vindictive. But according to one of Amy's family members, it seems that he has been ruled out. Okay. I've been told by her family that this individual was not only ruled out, but he was cleared using uh, DNA testing. Okay. So maybe they went and talked to him. He said, I had nothing to do with it. Here's my DNA. Clear me. Yeah. I've not seen her in God knows how long. Um, I will cooperate with your investigation. So where do they go to next? The more recent boyfriend? Well, yeah, that is the obvious place to go. They probably may even went there before any other, anybody else. So police honed in on her current boyfriend. Remember, this is somebody that the family was unaware of. He's a student at Bowling Green State University at the time. And Amy spent the weekend with this boyfriend in Bowling Green. What we end up learning here is that he does speak to police and he's very cooperative. He tells police that, hey, I gave her a small diamond ring that very weekend, the last weekend that I saw her. And in fact, it was still on her left hand when she died, when police found her. That's sad. But as we said, Amy's mom didn't know about this boyfriend and Amy didn't show her that diamond ring when she came over that Monday morning, the morning that she was killed. Yeah. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes that's sensitive with your, your parents. You don't want to tell them you're jumping into something too serious, you know, give them a little time. Well, and I do want to, I want to remind you about something too, is Amy's intentions. So Amy was very much wanting to be in the fashion industry. That's why she took that job. She, she applied for that manager's job at the leather store. Right. And she was working towards that. She was saving up for college. Her intention was to move back to California and attend school there. Mm -hmm. So I can totally see a situation where maybe this wasn't as serious for Amy as it was for the current boyfriend, or maybe this is not something that you want to discuss with mom, knowing that she plans to move out of state soon. Right, right. You know how it is. You don't want to get in one of these long conversations with, with one of your parents regarding what you're doing and how the order that you're choosing to do them in. I, I prefer to never talk to my parents about relationships, <laughs> sex, or anything. I mean, or that I'm even alive. So the family does not know about the boyfriend. They didn't know about the ring at the time. Later, they did find out that he was uh, not only a good student at Bowling Green, but he was also a football player. Uh, regarding this boyfriend, though... He was cleared. Now, mm -hmm. as far as public knowledge goes, what I could find in the newspapers, we don't know why or how that was never stated publicly other than he was cleared. So much so that police have gone on and stated that he's not a suspect. They right. publicly well, I mean, said he's not a suspect. This is happening Monday morning, correct? So wouldn't he be at school? Yes. I mean, they would have some record if he went to class. And well. So he'd have a lot of alibis, because if he's in a class of 30, then mm -hmm. he has 30 alibis. Mm -hmm. And plus, that's a it's a hefty drive. It's a two and a half hour drive, roughly. So that's five hours you're going to be on the road. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. 
Well, and we got like he would be easy to clear. Yes. Well, one hundred percent. It's it's it would easy be easy to either put clear him or put him right on the suspect list. Mm-hmm. And so, what I think we have here is it's early on in the investigation where they are stating they being law enforcement stating that he, the current boyfriend, is not a suspect. And my guess is that you're probably spot on here, Captain. That there are many people who are able to account for his whereabouts during that window of time. And really that window of time only has to be from 6:30 a.m. until 4 p.m. that right. day. Right. So less than a full day. And if he's at school all day long, well then he's not a good candidate for a suspect. And what I've been told here is that it's believed that even at a later date I, w- I want to point something out here. It's not like they find Amy's body and then they're immediately plucking suspects and testing DNA and clearing people. This isn't happening rapidly. This is happening slowly over a long period of time. And we have him who very quickly is named as not a suspect. From my understanding that even at a later date, even much later after being named as not a suspect, he provided DNA and they were able to clear him in that way. So there's absolutely no question in regards to the boyfriend. That's doing your due diligence right there. When you go, okay, we have alibis. We have cleared him. We don't think there's any way possible that he was even in Columbus at the time, but we're still going to go back now that we have DNA and make this mother sucker take a DNA test. Well, and that's why I stated earlier that I don't believe that this has not been solved because of a lack of effort. This is really them circling the wagons here and stating, you know what? We're going to double check everything. We're going to double, triple check everything until we get this thing solved. For all of our old episodes, check us out on the Stitcher app. If you download the Stitcher app, all of our episodes are for free there. And also we have a show, a weekly bonus show called Off the Record. That's a Stitcher premium show. Check that out. There's a link on our website. Go to truecrimegarage.com. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us here today in the garage. We will see you right back here tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too oh i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 